I want to be free, but I don't know how. Do you want to know how to build the blocks that help us obtain that freedom, that help us finally achieve Minerva? Well, today we're going to discuss the bedrock, the foundation of this personal freedom that, that I have coined Minerva as a parody to the Buddhist concept Nirvana. Today we're going to be exploring the different investment accounts which you should probably have in your arsenal. I'm Sal, your host. Welcome back to another episode of Achieving Minerva, the podcast, where we discuss the building blocks of true personal freedom. Health, wealth, and freedom are the cornerstones of Achieving Minerva. Financial independence is the spine of freedom, the building block that all the rest of the components of true freedom are built on. Financial independence is under the umbrella of personal finance, but we can consider personal finance to be classified as the intro, the 101 course. I like to think of personal finance as mostly the math of budgeting, living living below your means enough to squirrel away 10% of, of your income into savings for a rainy day. Personal finance can also be associated with broad topics such as insurance, benefits, compensation packages at work, buying a house, taxes, and on and on. But financial independence is the next class. Some consider it an elective, but it is essential. I disagree with it being an elective. Financial independence is often lumped into the movement called FIRE, which stands for Financial Independence slash Retiring Early. I consider financial independence to be essential and retiring early to be optional. After all, there are weirdos out there that love their job. There are plenty of people that hate their high-paying job and want a more fun, lower-paying job later. And there are individuals that just would be bored or feel useless without a job to do. But to each their own. Financial independence puts the power back into the individual's hands. Financial independence means you have the money that your current work situation is optional. You can choose to go. You can choose not to go. It gives you the power to stand up to that jackass boss with the security that even if he fires you, you're going to be fine. It gives you the power to quit the high-paying job in exchange for a perhaps more fulfilling one with lower pay and still be financially stable. Since financial independence is so integral to Minerva, the wealth part of health, wealth, and freedom, I figured we'd go a little in-depth into how to get there. This episode assumes that you have less than $10,000 in debt other than your mortgage for your primary home. So your credit card debt, student debt, auto loans, etc. should all collectively be less than $10,000. If that isn't you, go work on that. And I'll be honest, $10,000 is a little bit arbitrary, but I feel like it's a good benchmark. So if you're still in a lot of debt, I recommend something like Dave Ramsey's Baby Steps or our personal finance has a very similar step-by-step process for getting out of debt and taking a hold of your finances. This episode also assumes that you understand the basics of budgeting, such as your expenses should be less than your take-home pay so as not to need to need the debt. Easier said than done for most. And lastly, this episode also assumes that you don't have access to self-employed accounts, such as SEP IRAs and solo 401ks. Those will be left for another time. This is going to cover accounts that nearly everybody pursuing financial independence should have. 
And as a disclaimer, I am not a CPA or a tax attorney. I'm just somebody on this journey with you. I'm a nerd and I like sharing what I learn. So don't take all of this as advice. Go talk to an accountant. Invest at your own risk. Okay, now that that's all out of the way, let's dive into the sheets. We're going to go in order of priority. And there's also going to be an associated flowchart that I've created linked in the show notes. So first up is the 401k for those of you that have one available. Other accounts that fall into this category would be something like a 457 for state and local government workers or the thrift savings plan, TSP, for federal and military workers. But I'm going to be using 401k kind of to cover all of those accounts. All of these are similar in that they are part of your employment compensation package. These are personal retirement accounts serviced by a bank and sponsored by the employer. Usually some maintenance fees and other admin stuff is handled by the employer, but not always. If one of these options is offered at your job, I highly recommend you open one and make sure you have one opened because not all employers automatically enroll you in it. If you leave your job, you can roll a 401k into a traditional IRA and let it grow until you retire for real. Each job you leave, you can continue rolling them over into that same IRA. The 401k is your money. It's not a pension tied to the job. It is money that you are earning. You're just setting it aside in a tax-efficient way for your retirement later. Many employers offer a contribution match, and this is why the 401k should be the top priority. If your employer offers a contribution match into the 401k, contribute whatever is required to get the match because it is free money. Even if you're in a little bit of debt, even if you don't have an emergency fund, open it and contribute as much as you need to to get that match because it's part of your compensation package and it's free money that you're leaving on the table if you don't meet it. That is money that you will not be getting from your employer unless you contribute whatever is required to get the match. Many plans do something like they will match one-to-one up to 3% and then half up to 5%. So that means if you contribute 5% of your gross wages to your 401k, the employer will contribute 4%. That's 1% for the first three and then half for the next two. That equals 4%. And that's 4% on your gross income. You're leaving that on the table if you don't contribute the 5%. Another method is just straight matching. Example, the thrift savings plan for our federal employees just matches 4%, no matter what. Much simpler. Some employers just contribute automatically, whether you contribute yourself or not. These types of account are generally pre-tax money. It makes them tax-advantaged or tax-deferred. The money you put in is not taxed when you get paid, and then it grows tax-free. But later, after you're retired, when it gets taken out, you pay taxes based on how much you're withdrawing. The advantages and disadvantages of that are very nuanced, so we'll go over that later. So your employer-sponsored retirement account is top priority up to the match threshold. And for now, we're going to set aside the 401k, and we'll come back to it later in the episode. Next up is the IRA, which stands for the Individual Retirement Arrangement. These come in two flavors, traditional and Roth. 
All that is, is the tax treatment. Traditional works the same way as 401k, where the money you put in is not taxed, but it is taxed later when you withdraw it in retirement. Roth IRAs are the opposite. The money you put in is already taxed, and then it grows tax-free, and then when you withdraw, you don't pay any taxes because you already did that way back when you put it in. The decision to go Roth or traditional is very nuanced and a little bit individualistic, but I will say that most people that are eligible for a Roth would benefit from it. The Roth IRA is only an option until you make $153,000 or more as an individual or $228,000 as a married filed jointly. If you make more than those numbers, there are loopholes, but we won't, won't be going into those this time around. Whether you choose the individual or Roth flavor, the IRA is your money. It's just as much your money as the money in your checking account. So if you don't have one, stop and go get one. And if you think you might have one from years ago, try to track it down. I recommend opening one with Fidelity, Vanguard, or Schwab. Those are pretty much the top three most recommended on the forums that I frequent. There are a multitude of other banks out there, but these three tend to have equally shiny track records for the average Joe because they have low fees and the best investment options. So whether this is your first one or you're tracking down an old IRA from somewhere else, get it into one of these banks would be my recommendation. And full disclosure, I use Fidelity for all my investment accounts. The yearly contribution limit for IRAs is $6,500 for the tax year 2023, and it was $6,000 for 2022. And kind of a nuance in the tax code, you can contribute for the year 2022 up until April 15th, tax day. So in theory, you could put $12,500 of tax advantage money away this year up until April 15th if you can swing it. The only rule for having an IRA is you have to earn income of some sort. And if you are married, filed jointly, you can contribute to your spouse's IRA even if they don't earn income themselves. The IRA is the number two priority after getting the match from the 401k. The IRA is so favorable because the max is pretty achievable for most people earning income. And the tax advantages are stellar. In, if you choose the right bank or broker, your investment options are pretty much limitless. So at this point, we're going to start diverging into different individual paths here. So, so far, we've accounted for squirreling away approximately 5% of your gross income for most people, plus 6500 flat in your 401k up to the match, and then the IRA. Now, you're going to want to look at your health insurance. If you have a deductible of more than $1,500, if you're an individual, you're eligible for a health savings account, which is the Cadillac of investment accounts. You put pre-tax money going in, so it's not tax going in. It grows tax-free, and then it comes out tax-free if you spend it on medical expenses. And then after age 65, you can use it as a traditional IRA where it's taxed when you pull the money out for non-medical expenses. Contribution limits for 2023 are 3875 and for 2022, it was 3600 Same as an IRA, you can double dip until April 15th. 
So the health savings account should be your next priority if you're eligible because it either helps cover medical costs or it's another IRA later down the road. Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard all have HSA options, although it should be noted that if your employer uses a particular benefit service with an HSA, sometimes those HSAs don't have investment options or they have really poor ones. So you can have multiple HSAs. You can have the one that your employer requires so that they can contribute to. And then once a year, you can do what's called a transfer of assets into one of your more preferable investment accounts. This is what I have to do. If you aren't eligible for the HSA or after you've done all the HSA contributing, it's time to pull that 401k back out to the front. So far, you've contributed up to the match, which is usually in the ballpark of 5% of your gross income. The limits for 401k is $20,500 for the year 2023. So for many, that's, that is the ceiling or beyond of what they can save and invest in a year. That is a total of $27,000 between all these accounts without an HSA. And if you do have an HSA and you've maxed everything out, that's $30,875 for one person. If you're saving 25% of your income, you have to make $123,000 in order to put that much away. Far from impossible, but I wouldn't call it easy or normal either. An important note, an HSA is very different from an FSA, which is a flexible spending account. A FSA is use it or lose it. These are usually run through your employment benefit package. The main benefit is that you get all the money up front as credit, and then you contribute to it each paycheck. The downside is if you ask for $2,000 credit and you only use $500 of it, you just flush $1,500 down the toilet of your own money. A HSA, the health savings account, is your money, the same as the, four, the IRA and the 401k, and you can collect it all your life as long as you have a qualifying health plan. And all that leads us to the final account that everybody should have, the taxable brokerage. This is basically a checking account that you can invest. There are no rules about when you can sell and withdraw your holdings. No contribution limits. It's just the wild, wild west. But that also comes with the caveat that you have to abide by all the tax rules with no exceptions. And all the money that you sell, all the gains that you earn are taxed per the tax code. So you should use this account for savings goals of 10 years or more, as it will grow faster than your high-yield savings account over time, but it does have greater risk during a down year such as 2022. If you are trying to fire, that is retire early, in addition to financially independence, this account helps you get through the first five years before you can start accessing your the spoils of your tax advantage stuff. The tax per Protected money can be accessed before 59 and a half, which is contrary to what is advertised, but it is tricky and a topic for another time. But in general, it takes five years to be able to do that without penalties. So this taxable brokerage helps you float for those five, five years where you're going to need some help. For those that can't just max all the tax advantage accounts, it becomes a balancing act because the odds are there will be a time when you want to access your nest egg more easily and without penalty before the age of 60. 
So you want to give yourself some accessible capital in the taxable brokerage, but you also want to take advantage of the tax code because future you will thank you a lot. Now, that is a lot, but let's we're going to put it all into context and I'll explain what we have going in our own house. I have a 401k at my day job. I don't get a match, but my employer gives me 3% automatically regardless. So I have a 401k with Prudential, which is the servicer that my employer chooses to use. Again, that is usually non-negotiable. My wife did have a 401k at her job, but when she left her job, we rolled that over into a traditional IRA with Fidelity. And that money is just invested and sitting and to grow. We don't contribute to it because of the, of the next part. We each have a Roth IRA that gets maxed out in January every year. Most people do what's called dollar cost averaging, which means you just contribute and buy shares every month or whatever your period is, no matter what. The important part is that you keep buying whether the market is up or down. When the market is down, the shares are on sale. You should be buying as much as you possibly can. And when the market is up, the returns feel great. So DCA basically just covers your bases that you're still investing in all market climates and that you're not timing the market. Research, though, says that time in the market beats timing the market and beats DCA most of the time. And indeed, front-loading accounts, if possible, beats DCA most of the time. So here's what I did with our Roth IRAs years ago. In year one, I the max contribution at the time was $5,000. I calculated calculated that if we contribute $500 a month, we could max it out in 10 months. Then we would squirrel away the last two months into a high yield savings account until the following January. In year two, we each had $1,000 to front load from those last two months of the prior year. And then we continued with our $500 a month. This time we only needed eight months to max out our IRAs. And then we collected the remaining of the year the following January. After four years, we were able to just front load the maximum in January and dollar cost average all the other accounts. To me, this made sense because Roth IRA contributions are post-tax, so we funded ourselves, and it has nothing to do with our paychecks. 401k and HSA contributions are pre-tax, so you want those to be with paychecks so it gets reported properly, and you don't pay taxes going in. Not everyone agrees with the ladder I created because technically the money I kept in the high yield savings account could be better off in brokerage somewhere, but I prefer annual bills to monthly. It's just a psyche thing for me. So I did it for myself. If you get a sizable Christmas bonus at your corporate job, I would recommend using it to front load the IRA after the new year. So now we put the max in our IRAs every year in January, then I have the HSA that covers the family. And I max that out with with give or take $7,200 per year. I believe in the year 2023, the max is $7,300 for a family. And my employer only contributes to an HSA at a specific bank. So I collect it there. And then once a year, I move a lump sum into my separate investable HSA in Fidelity. But I keep the, the amount that is equal to my deductible in the one at the bank just to if I want to use it then I don't have to worry about it my wife also had an HSA 
Uh, but then when she quit, we moved hers into an HSA for herself just to sit and grow in fidelity. But because she doesn't have a qualifying plan, she can no longer contribute to it. My health plan covers the family, so basically her contributions are just going into my account. Then we also have a taxable brokerage with Fidelity, and I end up putting about twelve dollars to $15,000 into the 401k every year, and we put a few hundred into taxable each month. Because I anticipate to be fully fired in about 10 years in my early 40s, it is important to me to have a good cushion in the penalty-free taxable account. By that point, because the first five years of early retirement can be tricky to get the tax advantage money out. That's a topic for another time. So while I technically could max out the 401k, it is prudent in my situation to build up a buffer in the taxable. So all our our investment accounts are with Fidelity and my 401k is prudential. But when I retire, it will go into a Fidelity traditional IRA. I recommend keeping as much of your money in one institution as possible because it makes it easier for you to find later and easier for your beneficiaries to find should something happen to you. The last account we have is my pension account because I work for a municipality which operates within a state retirement system. So I get a non-optional 6% of my paycheck withheld into my pension account. And when I retire, I can take that lump sum out in cash and either invest it or use it as another cushion during the first five years. Or if there's a down market when I retire, then I still have a cash cushion out. So that is an in-depth look into what accounts we have and a look at which accounts should be prioritized. These are accounts that most people should have in their arsenal or have access to. I do have a flowchart linked in the show notes. We did not go into what investments we use or recommend because that's a topic for another time as far as asset allocation and which index funds we use. But I hope this did help someone out there get started with setting up your accounts in an efficient way to help you squirrel away a nest egg. Most of these principles apply whether you will retire at 30, 50, or 60. If you want to know more about how to go about opening some of these accounts, you can find a video that I put on YouTube recently that addresses this. The YouTube channel is still Achieving Minerva. And I also share a bit more about what I do with the freedom I've achieved so far on that channel. These podcast episodes are also available on YouTube just as audio files. So if you have friends that prefer YouTube while they're working, please share. Until next time, please share this, subscribe to us, comment with us on YouTube or any of your podcast platforms. We also have some content over at, at AchievingMinerva.com. That's where you will find the flow chart that's linked in the show notes. In any case, please tell your friends about us so we can all achieve Minerva together.